Well, I want to draw your attention this morning to a brief phrase, really, from the words that we read together from Romans chapter 5. This is one of those passages in which Paul uh, lists many of the blessings that come to us through the gospel. He shows in this passage how believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as our own saviour equips us for life and for what lies beyond life. And I want to look particularly at these words which are found in the second verse, the last few words really, where he says that through Christ, one of the things that we do is that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now I want, to, I want us to stop and think for a while about whether we really do have hope, whether we really do rejoice in hope. And the reason I say that is because the world in which we live, the society in which we live, is preoccupied in a very exclusive way with the imminent. And the imminent are the things that can be seen and touched and heard and felt and tasted. The things which we relate to through our senses. In other words, the here and the now. And really, for a long time, two, three, four hundred years, the sort of trajectory, the spiritual trajectory in this country has been to become more and more preoccupied with the here and the now. And that is so much the case that it's very difficult for us who believe that there is more than the here and now, to actually live in the consciousness of that in the way that we ought to do. We, we get no reminders of it from the media, and probably we spend a lot of time in front of our TVs or listening to our radios or in front of our computer screens, we get no reminders of it if we read a newspaper. The, the concerns there are politics, e economics, and, uh, and other things. We get no reminders of it if we uh, tune into the world of politics, because that's all about the present problems, and we're encouraged to hope in people who are seeking office to be the solution to the problems. We, we just live in a kind of vacuum when it comes to the eternal future. If it didn't exist at all, it would make no difference whatsoever to almost everything that goes on in this world. 
That's how it is. And we live in that sort of atmosphere. And you can't help when you live in an atmosphere breathing it in, being affected by it, and even, uh, to some extent, conforming to it. It's something that cannot be helped. And it's a problem, really, whether we are Christians or whether we're not Christians. If we're not Christians, we have no eternal concerns, no concern about eternity. But if we are, eternity doesn't have the impact upon us that it should have. And, and that's why it's very good, essential really, for us as Christians to come back again and again to the Word of God. Because the Word of God is not ignorant of this truth and present in the Word of God we see the lives of people who are affected by it. People who have hope and who live their lives in a particular way because of hope. And hope is something that makes a difference. One of these courses that churches put on uh, nowadays uh, that, that you can get and, and put it on if you want to is called Hope Explored. It's a sort of follow-on from Christianity Explored. And they have a definition of hope, unsurprisingly. You would certainly hope they would have. Hope is a joyful expectation for the future. But it goes further than that because we can all be optimistic. But this joyful expectation for the future is based on true events in the past. And it changes everything about my present. John Newton, the Christian author of the hymn Amazing Grace, became a Christian. Nobody is born a Christian, and he certainly wasn't. And he didn't grow up as a young man as a Christian. But he did do one thing that young men often do. At the age of 17... He met and fell head over heels in love with a girl called Mary, a 14-year-old. It wasn't appropriate or possible for them to marry at that time, but in their hearts, they gave themselves to each other for life. That was their expectation. From that point onwards, really, John Newton's life went downhill morally and in virtually every way. He spent the next seven years of his life at sea. Some of it in the Royal Navy, but some of it not in the Royal Navy because even his fellow sailors in the Royal Navy couldn't stand him. They couldn't stand the way he spoke. They couldn't stand the things he did. They couldn't stand his behaviour. They couldn't stand his language. And we're talking about sailors here. 
And his own description of that time in his life was like this. He said, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor, so far as I remember, the least sensitivity of conscience. My love to Mary was now the only restraint I had left. He still hoped. He actually ended up destitute and ill-treated. He was off the coast of Sierra Leone under the control of a woman who was working him and starving him to death. And even the slaves that she also owned smuggled him some of their meagre rations just to keep him alive. How could he keep going day by day? Well, he said, none of the scenes of misery and wickedness I after experienced ever banished her, Mary, a single hour together from my waking thoughts. And he lived through that experience because he believed he had a future with Mary. As I say, he wasn't a Christian at this point. And as he said, even an hour couldn't go by without him thinking of her. His, his mind was full of her and his heart was full of her. And that was a, a major reason why he could survive these things because he didn't write himself off. He had hope. And hope is a wonderful gift that God gives to his people. When we think of the hope that Christians have, what is that? Well, Paul writes in these verses, he says we, we, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, have you ever thought about that? You probably, like me, you've read that phrase lots and lots of times. But what, does it, what can it actually mean? Is God going to somehow become more glorious than he is already? Is that why we're hoping for it? Because God is going to be transformed into something even more glorious than he now is. Well, that's an impossibility, isn't it? So, when Paul says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, what is it that he's hoping for? That from which he derives this rejoicing? And I think the, the, the best way for us to answer that question is really with two, two further questions. And the first question is, well, what is Paul actually talking about? What is the glory of God? And then secondly, what is our relationship to the glory of God that gives us 
reason to rejoice. What is it about the glory of God that actually should, should bring us to this disposition of rejoicing? Well, what is the glory of God? Well, first of all, it's no good looking around and expecting to see the glory of God in one another. We read in the Bible that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's where we are. And if you look at me, you don't see the glory of God because I've fallen short of the glory of God. And if I look at you, I don't see the glory of God because you've fallen short of the glory of God. So one of the great differences between God and us is that God doesn't sin. So once we've said that, have we sort of summed up and described the glory of God? Well, no, we haven't. The Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 17 prayed this great high priestly prayer before he was crucified. And he prayed in verse 5 to be glorified together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The Lord Jesus Christ was one of the persons of the Trinity. But he had become the God-man. And as the God-man he was sinless. So he hadn't fallen short of the glory of God in the way that you and I have. But he still prayed to be glorified. So there is more to the glory of God than just the fact that he is sinless. That's part of it. But it's not all of it. And when we try and get our heads around the glory of God... We normally think about things that we call his attributes, his characteristics. And when you put them all together, they, they sum up to a tremendously glorious being. We think, for example, of, the, of his relationship to life itself. God is the living God. But where does that life come from? It comes from him. His self-existence is completely underived. That isn't true of you and me, is it? We derived our existence from other people. We depend for our existence on other people. But God's relationship to his own life is that it comes from him. He gives himself life. And he has never not lived. God has personality. He is a personal being. He's not the force of any of those things that people believe in. The unseen hand or something like that. He is a person. 
And if we are to know God, we have to know him as a person. God is complex. Because there are three persons in the Godhead. They are all individual persons. They address one another. They fellowship with one another. They are completely satisfied with one another. But there is only one God. It's, it's, we, we cannot think of how more than one person can be one. But there is only one God. So God is complex. God is eternal. Time does not mean to God what it means to us. He created time. He is above time. Eternity is not simply endlessness measured in time. Eternity is, is another dimension. Again, it's something that we can read about and very difficult to understand exactly what it is. But God is so in the present, all of what we experience as time. The psalmist said to him on one occasion, or wrote in one of his psalms, before a word is on my mouth, you know it altogether. Now, I don't know a single word that's going to come from your mouth. I don't know what you're going to say to me when I greet you and shake your hand after the service is over. But I can't, I can't say, none of us can say a single thing that God doesn't know because he's already there. He's already where every thought is. He's already where every word is. He is complete. He is not limited in the way that we are by having to be in the present. He is eternal. There are some things that God cannot do. And sometimes we sing, isn't it? Don't we, or children sing, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. Well, actually, there are things he cannot do. God cannot learn anything because he knows everything. And in fact, whatever is a thing is only a thing because God knows it, because God has determined that it should exist. He determines. He doesn't know because he's read all the books and educated himself in that way. Or because he spent aeons and aeons, centuries and centuries, grasping a tremendous number of facts that, that he won't forget. He's, he's not gone through any of those experiences. The experiences which bring us to a position of knowledge. God doesn't need any of them because he knows everything. He has always known everything and in fact he has always been the reason for everything. So he cannot not know it. He brings everything into existence. 
He is never short of power. Because he has all power. He is omnipotent. He is never ignorant because something happens that he doesn't see. Because nothing happens that he doesn't see. Because he sees everything. He is everywhere. And he is everywhere in a sort of total way. All of God is everywhere. He's not limited by space like we are. You know, we, we could argue that, that, that we could be in more than one place at once. So I put my hand up here. That's not where my foot is, is it? My foot is down here. And so there are two different places. We say, well, I can be in more than one place. But that's, that's not how God is in more than one place. It's not that his hand is in one place and his eyes are somewhere else. Everything about God is in every place all of the time. And he is holy. And we only learn what holiness is when we learn about God. We don't learn what holiness is from one another. We learn about it when we learn about God. When we see the things that he has done, how he has used this power and his wisdom and his knowledge. And the things that he has brought about, the things that he has endowed creation with, that, that, that our society is busy trying to get rid of. He, he is holy in, the, in a way that we cannot fathom. Even the angels in his presence who have never, ever been anything but holy themselves cry out, holy is the Lord. And they say it over and over again. It's the, the thing that seems to sort of exude from him into their minds. He is never ever defeated. He is the sovereign God. He is the ruler. We sometimes sing, don't we? Sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise. And go on to sing about the fact that everything is in his hand, everything is in his plan. And he is a loving God. Why does the universe exist? What is unique to this created world that isn't even evident if all there was was heaven? There is something. And it isn't just God's creative power, that's evident, but that's seen in heaven because he created the heavens and the earth. But what is unique about this world in which we live is that it is the theatre of God's grace. When God made the universe and when he made this world and he populated it with animals and plants and then ultimately man whom he made in his image, what happened? 
man turned away and rebelled against God. And Satan was able to insinuate into the ears, first of all, of the woman and then the man. If you do what God has told you not to do, you'll become like him. Knowing good and evil. What does knowing good and evil mean in that context? It means this. That you will determine what is good and what is evil. You won't need God to tell you. And in fact you won't need to agree with God either. If he tells you not to do something you want to do. And you think it's good. It will be good. Because you'll be like God. That's what Satan was insinuating. That was the temptation he'd fallen for. That if he could lead a rebellion in heaven, he could take over. But he hadn't taken over. He'd been cast out. But he wanted the creation, what God had created, and particularly men and women who were made in God's image, to join in that rebellion. He hated God. He didn't care, I don't think, really about whether the rebellion would ultimately be victorious. He knew it would be not what God had created men and women to do. He fell for it, they fell for it, when he put it to them. What did that do? It opened the door in creation for death to become a reality. For death as the punishment of sin to become a reality for human beings. And what did that do? It opened the door for the second person of the Trinity to become a human being and to submit himself to death in order to save. And so the world is created as the theatre for grace. People didn't deserve to be saved. They didn't deserve that love and that kindness. But God created in the way he did in order that it might become a reality. When we, one of the things we read, we read this uh, in the New Testament, one of Peter's letters, is that the actions of the grace of God, the church itself, are things that the angels desire to look into. Because they are learning about God and the grace of God from seeing the grace of God in action, there, there isn't the same grace to them as angels. Those who fell, fell, and they will never be redeemed. There is no redeemer for the angels. There is no grace. It, there is grace in the sense of the, that they've been given their being, and they have been confirmed in their righteous position. But there isn't saving grace for angels that sinned. There isn't redeeming grace. And so they look at this in wonder. 
We should look at it in wonder as well, even more than they do, perhaps. Now, God, we read, made men and women in his image. What does that mean? Well, it means that some of those things that we've been thinking about can be reflected in us, in our personality. We have personality. That's something that's in God's image. And some of those things can be reflected in us. Not all of them. So we divide the attributes of God into those that are communicable, in other words, they can be seen in us and those that are incommunicable they can only be seen in God but these things about God as we said at the beginning have always been true God hasn't become all-knowing he hasn't become the source of life he hasn't become Sovereign. He's not sort of worked his way up to these positions. They've always been true of him. And the more that we can understand them, the more that we can think about the glory of God, because these are the things in which the glory of God consists. So what are we hoping for? What is our relationship to the glory of God? To all of these things. Back in chapter 2 and verse 6, we read this about God. That he is the one who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory honour and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish so if we give our lives to Christ what are we doing? well we are seeking for glory we are seeking to become more like God we are seeking to become as much like God as we possibly can. We are seeking for glory, honour and immortality. We are seeking something in the future, not necessarily in the present, although we are glad it begins in the present. But how do we expect to receive glory, honour and immortality? Well, further forward in the book of Romans to chapter 8. We read that if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified, we may be glorified together. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So we have a relationship to the glory of God. The glory of God consists in these attributes, but we have a relationship that 
those attributes which are communicable are going to be revealed in us. What, what does this glory mean? Well, here's what I think it means. It means taking possession of the same humanity that the Lord Jesus Christ now has. Whatever is true of him as a man will be true of us because the Lord Jesus Christ is still a man and whatever is true of him as a man will be true of us. In John's first letter, in chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. This is our great longing, isn't it? Oh, if I could just be more like Christ. Well, we will be. You will be. Like him. When you see him as he is. What does it mean to be like him? Well, it, 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 means, it means the removal of sin and all of its consequences. We will be sinless like him. In all of our motives and our words and our actions, we will never, once we're like him, we will never look back on any motive or any word or any action and wish we hadn't done it. Feel ashamed of it. That will not be part of our experience. But it goes further. It extends even to our bodies, our flesh and blood bodies our, our bodies have a susceptibility don't they many susceptibilities to aging decaying dying even from the beginning some of us are born with less than fully functional bodies or brains We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That, that decaying thing can't, can't be in heaven. It, it isn't a glorified body. It's, it's a corruptible body. And it must put on incorruption. Our bodies must be transformed. It's a mortal body. If we die before the Lord returns, our body will become lifeless and it will be laid in the ground and it will decay even further. So it's got to put on incorruption. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Does that mean that heaven is a sort of immaterial place? No, no. It doesn't mean that. We will each continue to have a physical body, but it will be a body like Christ's. Like his perfect body. Even the rest of corruption will benefit. We read in Romans 8 that it's longing for the revelation of the sons of God. 
because the corruption itself, the creation itself, will be delivered from its corruption and its bondage to decay at that same time. The social order of heaven will be different to the social order that we have on earth. There will be no marriage or giving in marriage. There, there will be no procreation in the same way that there is now. And Jesus says that that's the case because we'll be like the angels. The angels don't experience things like procreation and so on and we will be like them. The angels are organised. They have differences in status. That must be true of heaven as well. And as individuals and social beings, we will, be, we will continue to grow and to develop, but we will have perfect relationships with one another. And our faculties will not be lost in heaven, but actually freed to express themselves. Science will be better science, engineering will be better engineering, building will be better building, design will be better design, because the true creativity which we will be restored to will, will find expression there. And our understanding of God will be perfected he won't be the mystery that to some extent he is to us now we shall know as we are fully known and our worship will be transformed we're rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God not because God is yet to be glorified, but because we are. Hope, if we think back to the definition I began with, is a joyful expectation for the future based on true events in the past. And it changes everything about my present, which is what Paul goes on to tell us in Romans chapter 5. Are you rejoicing in hope of the glory of God? Because it will be revealed in you if you are a believer. Unimaginably. For us, but not for God. It will be revealed in you Revealed in us. And life will never be the same. It transforms the present. We rejoice in tribulations. We rejoice in everything. Because God is working in everything. To bring us to this place. And this condition. And this perfection. Nothing that the world can throw at us can take this hope away. Let's hold on to it. Let's develop it. Let's, let's have it in our consciousness more and more and more. And let us begin to realise it.
as well as we can, even while we're here. Do you know, it was said of one man, may have been said of others, I don't know, but it was recorded that it was said of one man. He was in heaven, sorry, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And that should be our aspiration, shouldn't it? For heaven to be in us before we are in heaven. That should be